Well, hello and good morning, Riverview Church. Great to be with you. My name is Justin. I am the director and uh, pastor of our Rio Town venue. I'm normally there leading the charge, so it's great to be one of those few times of the year where I get to swing down here and, and, and Holt and join you. Uh, digital friends, hello. You look great on your couch. Love the jammas. Um, I want to start out today with a piece of unsolicited relationship advice that you didn't ask for, Okay. For us to do that, I want you to take an inventory of the people that you know and love. Like, who are your people, right? Who are you committed to? Who, who, who are you responsible for? Who do you spend the most time with? You, you have those, those faces queued up? Okay, uh, here's the advice. Don't let the bad things in the relationship or the, the flaws in those persons outweigh the good things, okay? To put that positively, uh, make sure that you spend more time and energy reflecting on the good things, the redeemable things, than you do the bad things. We don't want to take for granted the things that are good and right and true. I was uh, reading some research uh, this past week um, because I like to party, and as um, this, this, this researcher, John Gottman, this expert in, in, re- in research, uh, excuse me, relationships, was saying is that for our relationships to be healthy, to be successful, to thrive and to flourish, we need to have a ratio of five to one, five positive encounters for every one negative encounter. This means for every negative comment, bad vibe, whatever kind of interaction that's toxic, we need to have five that are positive to counterbalance it. Yes, we have to acknowledge what's bad. You have to be adults. You have to be grown up. You have to face the music. But the overall instances of care, compassion, interest, kindness, laughter, bonding, sharing interests, those need to outweigh. The good things need to outweigh all the instances of criticism, complaint, biting comments, bitter thoughts, and etc. If I could Christianize this idea... Maybe we could say something like this, that the size of our love is supposed to overshadow the shape of, of, of their sin or their flaw, okay? Now, this is important because what we do as humans, we create feedback loops in our mind that play over and over again. Some are positive, some are negative. Uh, consider three quick scenarios with me. Tomorrow, you receive a Valentine's Day card. What kind of message do you want in there? Right? A little poem, a really bad A-B rhyme scheme that reminds you of the five ways that you are deeply flawed. Is that what you want to read? What about an anxious little boy struggling to, to, to learn to ride his bike? The training wheels just came off. He's fallen a couple times. Dad's there with him. What does he need to hear from his father? Criticism about his undeveloped motor skills, that he's afraid, that he's crying? Or does he need to be encouraged that even though his knees are bleeding, he's getting back on the bike? What about a teenage girl? She's looking at herself in the mirror. What should her inner monologue be like? As she sees herself, what should she be saying to herself? Should she self-loathe and make negative comparisons to, to the airbrushed people on magazine covers? Or when she looks into a mirror, should she see true beauty because she has been made in the image of God? Now, it doesn't take expertise to know uh, that it's harmful to have a negative feedback loop, to have a skewed ratio of toxic negative thoughts so you don't miss out on what, good, what is good, right, and true. Now, this principle holds for our relationships with humans and with ourselves, but does it hold for our theology, for what we think about the Bible, for our relationship uh, to, to God? Does that hold? 
Many Christians, we, we, we spend more time and energy fixated on the bad news than the good news. More focused on the shape and the extent of our sin than the size and the enormity of God's grace and forgiveness. What I'm getting at is, spiritually speaking, what's your ratio like? When things are quiet, you're alone with your thoughts, or you just made a mistake, how do you feel God feels about you? How do you think God thinks about you? What's your feedback loop like? This morning, we're putting in the second-to-last installment of the Apostles' Creed, this historic statement of belief that charts out essential Christianity, the unifying, sacred, and timeless things that unite the church over geography, time, denomination. And so let's do something that we're going to do. Only for this series, uh, as you are able, I want to invite you to stand, and we're going to recite the Apostles' Creed together. Here goes. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You can have a seat. So what we're going to do today is we're going to focus on four words from the third to last line in the creed. Um, The lines that, that reads, and I quote, the forgiveness of sins. We are going to suppose we believe in that. But from the jump, we have to recognize that the word uh, forgive or some iteration like forgiveness or forgiving shows up hundreds of times in the Bible. That's not even included like the, the, the related words that are essentially getting at the same thing. And even when that language is not there, that concept indirectly is being worked out more or less on every page of Scripture. And so what this tells us is that forgiveness is very important, but it's not only very important, it's very far-reaching, it's it's expansive. And so what that means is we can't cover everything in just one shot. I mean, it's like if together this morning we all got on some tour buses and we drove out to the Grand Canyon and we popped out and I was your tour guide and we just looked at how vast and beautiful and wide and deep and expansive it was and I was like, all right, everybody, we got about 40 minutes, let's do it all. We wouldn't quite, that, maybe that's a little too ambitious, right? So what this means is, even if I do a good job of handling this topic, let's just pretend this talk's not gonna bomb. Okay, just maybe. Let's pretend that that goes well. There are questions unanswered. There are truths uncommunicated. And what I'm getting at is that's okay. If we can't get all the the theological trivia right, because today's not really about information, I want you to check whether or not you have true spiritual transformation going on in your heart. Because so often, the, the, the presence and the reality of sin seems to loom larger than forgiveness. I feel more sinful than I am forgiven. Personally, this means we walk around like Eeyore. We're beat down. We're weary over sin. We, we, we feel helpless. Relationally, it cripples us. We get stuck on, fixated on the sins of others, how we've been wronged. There's, there's no goodwill. We're bitter. 
And then there's this watching world. Looking in at this faith that's supposed to be good news. I mean, there is not a worldview, and I've studied religions, that has the amount of data and content about forgiveness as Christianity. Do we have the reputation for living like forgiven people, for being forgiven, for understanding it and extending it? So let's consider this creed carefully this morning. Let's look again. It says, we believe in, and I quote, the forgiveness of sins. Now notice, it's making a statement here. It's not really debating whether or not we're sinful. It just says we're sinful. Takes that for granted. So what do we mean by sin? This is pretty important. Well, sin is moral evil. It's not natural evil. It's not that, that impersonal trouble that comes with the, with the fall. It's not like a flood, an earthquake, or, or a disease. Um, it, it involves perpetrators. Agency. Human will. Corrupt desires. Uh, it can look a number of different ways. We, we can have sins of, of commission, where we actively do something wrong. We can have sins of omission, uh, so says James, where we don't know or don't do the good that we know that we should do. All right? Sin can be individualistic. Individuals are called out. We're told individually to, to repent for salvation, but also can be uh, collective. I mean, think about a human trafficking ring. How those uh, people come together and something is so worse together than it would be apart. Even pull out a bad actor and it's still going. There can be sins of the family, sins of the nation. Uh, idolatries are, are called out all the time. I mean, that, that'd be a great way to get not fun emails. Just start calling out all the idolatries that we struggle with. What about generations? Generations. Jesus and Peter both rebuke an unbelieving generation. So what sin means as a whole, humanity has a corrupt condition that can result in spiritual death. And the Bible has a lot of ways to talk about this uh, predicament. You have the standard of righteousness, like a bullseye. We're not hitting the target. We are in the wrong. We are not right. We are not righteous. We are owed wrath. Uh, language of the marketplace. We have a debt that, that we can't pay. We, we, we can't take care of that on our own. Legally, in a legal sense, uh, we are guilty in a court of law. We, we have a sentence that we actually deserve. And so while all these descriptors are helpful, they, they don't have their true meaning unless I bring in one crucial element. You, you might notice when I'm talking about sin, I haven't mentioned someone yet. Who haven't I mentioned? God. Sin is ultimately unre unloving rebellion against God. When Jesus was asked about the most important commandment, what we were supposed to be about, what it's all about at the end of the day, what's the criteria he goes back to Deuteronomy 6, to the Jewish prayer, the Shema, which means hear or listen. And he says, this is what it's all about. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. How are you doing with that all the time? You ever missed on that one? The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. Notice how there's no asterisk unless they think differently than you. Unless that, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. So sin is a failure to love the rightful king and his children. It's not making a mistake in a vacuum like, oops, I colored outside the lines. Right? It's ultimately against a personal and holy God. See, we don't just break a law, we break his law. We're not just being offensive, we are offending him. And if we're hurting people, we're hurting God because people are gods. You want beef with a parent? Hurt their kids you will see all kinds of crazy, right? Because if you hurt someone's child, 
You hurt that person. All sin is unloving rebellion against someone. That's why Paul in Romans 3 can boldly quote the Old Testament when he says, there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. No one gets it. And here's why. There is no one who seeks God, who seeks God at our core. We might seek moral improvement. We might be spiritually curious. Uh, we, We might seek after the things God could give us, his blessings. But to seek God Apart from being regenerated by the Holy Spirit, I want nothing to do with that. To seek him for who he is, that's not us. This is why we are not hypothetical sinners, okay? We are actual sinners. And the bad news is, though we broke it, we can't fix it. These dirty hands of mine, they can't wash me clean. So this ultimate problem that we have is how this holy God deals with sin, He's like the cosmic neat freak. It can't be in his presence. He's got to punish it. He has to take it away. He has to deal with it. So the bad news is we are sinners, but the Apostles' Creed, as a summary of Scripture says, that's not the only part of the story. It seems to suggest, the way it's written, that forgiveness outweighs sin. I want to give you a New Testament explanation of how this is possible. Romans 5. Paul says... God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He took the penalty. How much more then, since we have been justified by his blood, there's a legal term, legal justification, will we be saved through him from wrath? There is no punishment. So Paul is saying Jesus died in our place as a substitute, that he not only took the bad, away and gave us a clean slate because that's what forgiveness means. But he added his own righteousness to that. Mercy says, I don't, I don't get what I deserve. And grace says, I, I, get, I get the good that, that I don't deserve, right? So this is our standing. And so notice the way the creed speaks about sin. It, it does acknowledge sin, but notice how it frames it. It could have said something negative. Like we believe we are guilty of sins. Didn't say that. It could have been neutral. It could say, uh, we, we believe in the existence of sins, but it frames it positively. We believe in the forgiveness of sins. It assumes that for Christians, the good news of forgiveness outweighs the bad news of our sin. The ratio is skewed. What about you? As you consider this stuff, what, what is on the day-to-day more weighty, more real? How your past is checkered? How your present is still ugly because you've got drives and desires and then and, and you got that track record, that, that, that past, you got a trajectory and you're like, ooh, I'll probably blow it in the future. When you think about God, how do you think God thinks about you? What do you feel God feels about you? Does, does he just tolerate you, like try not to like, vomit in the back of his mouth when he thinks of you? Or does he like you? Now, as you're thinking about that, <clears throat> here's David's psalm of praise, Psalm 103. He starts out by saying, the Lord is. Okay, now if you didn't have this uh, on the screen behind me or in front of you, um, in a vacuum, how, how would you like fill out that sentence? Like if we just had a blank, like the Lord is grouchy, mad, hot and bothered. Like what, what will we say about God? Well, we'll let David speak because this is inspired. He said, the Lord is compassionate and gracious slow to anger and abounding in faithful love. He will not always accuse us or be angry forever. He has not dealt with us as our sins deserve or repaid us according to our iniquities. 
Okay? And, and, and then he's going to give us an illustration. Have you ever used distance to tell somebody how much you love them? Right? Joel, I love you this much. Ross, okay? This is what he's going to do. He's going to help us think about this, okay? He says, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, you, you, you're tracking? Some of the eggheads will say, what, what if the universe is, is, is infinite? It's expansive, right? Like, we, we don't really comprehend light years, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his faithful love towards those who love him. Um, an- another one. Um, the east and the west, right? They're different. The east and the west, are, they, they don't touch. They're contradictory. Okay, verse, verse 12. Let's pick up what he's putting down. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. What if the punchline isn't, for those of us who are in Christ, that we're bad kids? What if the punchline is that we have a loving father? What if that's louder? If that's the case, we're good, right? We'll never struggle. We'll never have a rut. This will never be hard. Right? Well, not so fast. <laughs> right? Because while it's true on the page, that doesn't necessarily mean it resonates. And it's experienced in the heart in the day-to-day. Um, the, the majority of the counseling appointments that I've been taking, especially in the last couple years, um, are with sincere believers in Christ, steady people who are not experiencing peace, uh, victory, and the surpassing joy. The, the, the spiritual life feels weighty and heavy in, in the wrong sorts of way, ways. And, and that's not just true for them, if I'm honest. It's true for the guy in the mirror as well. I mean, are we always perfectly, thoroughly convinced of God's delight and love with us all the time? I was uh, speaking with a woman not too long ago. We sat down. She's been a sturdy believer uh, for decades. She's, she serves faithfully. Uh, she's gracious. She's low maintenance, high character. You, you could trust her with, with a secret. You could entrust her with small children. She's trying to pick up her cross every day, but yet we're talking and she's weeping. She's got tears. She's beat down by her past, discouraged by her present. She's already converted, mind you. She feels so heavy, saying, I should have been better then. And I should be better now. And, and again, I want to stress this. Like, I asked her some questions. I mean, she wasn't like in the middle of a string of armed robberies. And she's like, I got a few more to go in my conscience. Whew. That's not what she was doing. She is trying her best. And she says, I realize that even when I do the right thing, at my best I have mixed motives. Often I do it for the wrong motives. And it's kind of like this. So often as our theological understanding of who God is grows, we see that he is more holy. He is better. He is perfect. And, and God it just becomes so unreachable. And then, and if we're honest with the person in the mirror, we're like, whoa. I've got more issues. I, I just projected my stuff on somebody else, right? And, and, and I'm lower. And, I'm, and it's like this gap just grows and grows and grows and grows and grows. And it doesn't help uh, that, that our cultural moment um, you know, is still a dumpster fire, right? <laughs> I mean, l- let's go on a scavenger hunt today for, like, forgiveness and goodwill and grace, right? We're just going to look forever. It's in short supply. So not only is our conscience screaming at us when we make mistakes— 
right? We can't make others happy all the time. You can face criticism at any time for anything. Don't you feel this? What's your feedback loop like? What's your ratio like? I wonder if, if the issue that we're facing, even though it's true on the page, has to do with misplaced attention. Uh, kind of like this. Show of hands. How many of you here struggle to hold a conversation and track with someone while the television is on? Show of hands. The rest of you have so much ADHD that you didn't even just hear that. So <laughs> it's so hard to listen, right? When, you, when you've got video and audio and the glowing screen, and then you've just got one input here. My, my wife and I were talking this past week. I had the news on. And there was a story on. The story had nothing to do with me. It wasn't that much of a hot take. It was just this thing. Didn't apply. wasn't relevant. And she's talking to me about our day, our life, what makes sense. And, and one message gets through. <laughs> Not the one uh, that applies to me, that is relevant, but the one that, that, that doesn't. And, and I think that's what happens with us sometimes. We keep tracking with one of the messages not the other. So let's, let's get practical. How might we resolve this? We see the problem. How, we, uh, how might we resolve this? Well, three ideas for you. One, receive forgiveness. I've been speaking primarily to Christians, and if, if you're listening, you're hearing this, you're, you're at home, uh, tracking along with this. Uh, first of all, hey, thank you so much for having an open mind, for being here, for, for, for listening, for letting that, that weird person drag you here. Thank you. Um, but this is where I do want to speak to you because we've been speaking in-house. But receive forgiveness. I don't want to take this for granted. If you haven't received this offer in the first place, I don't think this plan can ever really get off the ground. We need salvation. Once that happens, our reality shifts. We have a, we have a new category, a new position. where we, we have a new position, a standing in Christ. That's our reality. And then the task becomes to get our perception to map on said reality. Okay? So John, when he's talking to Christians, 1 John 1, 9 says this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from how much unrighteousness? All of it. Like, that should have been a moment where we, like, immediately just got really charismatic. All of it. Who is faithful? Who is righteous? It's not us. We're recipients. We receive that. That's God. And what does he do? He cleanses us perfectly. And so if we believe, we confess, we become saved. This means despite our perception, our reality has shifted. And we are loved and we are accepted no matter what. That's the foundation. That's the trampoline we get to jump off of. However you want to frame it, that's the starting line. Receive forgiveness. Number two, extend and ask for forgiveness. Um, we, we need to be people who experience forgiveness, right? And I know that whenever you say this, especially publicly, um, when you ask people to forgive others, that stirs up so much inside of us, doesn't it? So much. And, and so I want to just clarify this. This could be like one of those Grand Canyon trails that we're not really taking, but I just, I just want, to, I want to hedge. I want to be careful here so we don't miss this. That forgiveness is not dismissing sin. It's not looking the other way or refusing to treat evil as evil. It involves naming it, treating it as it is. And relationships have consequences, right? Abuse, uh, betrayal, sometimes they're severed for a season. Sometimes they're severed permanently. And, and, and I just want to say this. 
This doesn't mean we don't call the authorities. If it relates to the church, this is why we have church discipline. Okay? Forgiveness is that aspiration that I'm not going to drink that bitterness and that poison again and again. Because we've already been wounded enough. We don't want to keep being wounded again and again and again and again. So, so that's my clarification. But, but I do want to challenge us here to extend and ask for our forgiveness. Because our relationship with one another impacts our relationship with God. Last week, we learned about communion. Our union with God. How we have this, this vertical experience with God. And how that's supposed to manifest with our horizontal experience with one another. Good relationships require giving and receiving forgiveness. This is Paul, Romans, or not Romans 4, but Ephesians 4. He says, let all bitterness, not some, not most, all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting and slander be removed from you, along with all malice, and be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another just as God forgave you in Christ. Is Jesus better towards us? Is he walking around Berating us, fixating on our faults when he's being crucified. Talk about being misunderstood. The words, the abuse, none of it's deserved. He says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. So I think for us to help uh, better perceive the reality of forgiveness, we have two questions that are worth asking. Number one, who might you need to forgive? Who might I need to forgive this morning? And that's a messy process. That's not usually a one-time thing. You just go back to the well. Secondly, who might you need to ask forgiveness of? It's, that's a, it's a tricky thing, right? Because here's the sentence then. I did you wrong. That time when I did the, name the thing, I did you That's a sentence that's easy to speak, but it's so hard to speak. Right? It takes a lot of vulnerability. Okay, so, so let's be people who extend and ask forgiveness. Number, number three, and this is kind of the, the crux here. Be transformed by, by forgiveness. Not just informed about an idea, but, but let your deformed soul be reshaped. Uh, that, that woman that I mentioned a, f- a few moments ago who was beat down by her sin, uh, we, we were talking, and we, we, we got into talking about Romans 7. How the apostle Paul, at this point, the Christian Paul, The Apostle Paul, some would say the second most important Christian ever. The Apostle in Romans 7, look this up sometime. It's like, I don't even understand myself. My flesh is so ugly. I am a wretched man. His desires, who he was in his natural state, weren't getting any better, even though he had the Holy Spirit. He's feeling hopeless. And then he says, who will save me from this body of sin? Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 1. This is what he says after building up that case. He says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. I read that to her, and she says, yeah, but. Do you know what I've done? And I said, look, you can can tell me, but I don't need to. Do you know what he has done? And she's like, yeah, but. (laughs) And I said, look, look. Is God telling the truth? Does God tell the truth? She said, yes, he does. So if this is true, how much condemnation right now is hanging over your head? She's like, none. But, uh, but I feel accused. I feel condemned. I feel unlovable. So you, you just keep reading Romans 8, right? You, you get to verse 33. It says, who can bring an accusation against God's elect? And elect means God picked you. 
He chose you. He wanted you. God is the one who justifies. Okay, so, so, so the, the thing is, there is an accuser. The, the name Satan means accuser. An adversary, one who obstructs, and what he uses is, is lies. And a good lie is wrapped up with enough truth to make it look right. If, if it's only falsehood, it doesn't land, right? But that's the one. Verse 34 says, who is the one who condemns? Does Jesus condemn us? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more, has been raised. And he is also at the right hand of God interceding for us. And so this was uh, one of the lines of the creed that we we took on a few weeks back. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? I looked at her and I said, can you separate you from the love of Christ? And she was crying again. But these were different tears. Her body language was completely different because she was seeing the size of her Savior And that was beginning to outshadow the the shape of her sin. And so I just want to cast vision for us for a moment. What if for every one time we thought about our sins, every one time we actually blew it and we make a mistake, for every one time we, we, we looked at our Savior five times? Wouldn't that begin to rewire us? I mean, we probably would do less sinning, by the way. But that would also rewire our, our, our feedback loop. Looking at his love, his compassion, his graciousness, that would fill us up. Wouldn't our assurance grow? We're seeing God as great and mighty and us as terrible. Wouldn't that just magnify our view of the cross? That that cross just gets bigger and bigger and bigger? Classic Tim Keller quote is required here, mandatory. The gospel says you are more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe, but more accepted in love than you ever dared hope. How would our lives, how would our relationships, how would this congregation, how would even the, the city beyond us, how would things look if we, if we got this, really got this? Not like t- correct trivia, theological answers, but we are transformed by this. How do you build a church? How do you rebuild a church? How do you build society and community? How do you rebuild it? You do it by grasping the truth that forgiveness is greater than sin. That's what rewires the feedback loop. It would fill us up with good to the point we're going to overflow. You can't help but hold it in. In 2022, everywhere you look, there's just scorched earth and beat up ground. People are hungering for this. So, brothers and sisters of Riverview Church, the bad news says we are sinners. But the good news says you are forgiven. 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 Let's pray. Lord, in a moment we will sing a song. We will sing theology that says how great the Father's love is for us. It's too vast beyond measure. You gave your only son to make a wretch your treasure. We're called to be believers. Help us to believe in the forgiveness of sins. That though it's real... What is more real for those that are in you is forgiveness, that you love us, that you delight in us, Lord. Only your grace, only your power and mercy can overcome that. Transform us. Amen.